Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS, in the studio and somehow not on holiday yet, although one is no doubt forthcoming, (laughs) is commissioning editor Thea, don't call me Sam or Feisty. That's the two things I've learned actually over the last year of doing this podcast. You clearly haven't learned them. No, no, I've I've not learned them poorly actually. Uh, Thea, is the amount of prolonged working without rest tiring? Are you looking forward to your next I'm break? utterly, utterly exhausted. I yeah. mean, my hands are crippled with, with tightly gripping my pencil. And, and doing all of that editing. Uh, well, I hope this podcast isn't going to be too depressing, although we are heading towards depressing subjects, aren't we? I'll take a holiday to recover. Yeah, and the thing is, it sounds like a joke, and then, of course, <laughs> it isn't. If you want to subscribe to the TLS, Google TLS subscriptions, type POD1 in the offer code section. You can get six issues for £6. Yes, coming up on the show this week, we'll be talking politics, boo, and a bit of modern art. Hooray, we are now about a month on since the general election. That's about how it's going to go, I feel. Hysterical. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. You do need a break. That uh, The election that turned a strong and stable Prime Minister with a small but functioning majority into a weak and wobbly caricature of a political robot in hock to the DUP and engaged this week in a relaunch of her brand and her government. James O'Brien has considered the last 30-odd days in the world of Theresa May and will be on the line to discuss it with us. The relationship between the Conservatives and the DUP is a reminder of the historic handling of the Irish question in the British Parliament over the last hundred years and more. Historian Roy Foster has addressed this question once more. And the Tate Modern Summer Exhibition this year is an examination of what black artists did in America during the time of the civil rights movement. Art guru Anna Vo has been to see Soul of a Nation Art in the Age of Black Power and has spoken to its curator. Let me be clear. Is there a more annoying or fundamentally misleading political cliche than that? 
Politicians always begin their obfuscations, their delusional self-justifications by pretending to offer clarity. Theresa May is the very high priestess of the false invocations at the altar of being clear. And for this sin has been punished with a premiership that will ever be known for its messiness, for its lack of clarity. So let me be clear, one month after an election she did not need to call to bolster a mandate for Brexit following a referendum her predecessor did not need to call, Theresa May faces a fight not only to preserve her job and political future, but arguably the short term at least future of her party and its ideals. We live, as they always say, in interesting times. James O'Brien, who spends his mornings on LBC radio picking over the increasingly rancid corpse of the body politic, begins his essay in the TLS this week with a confession. I do not share some journalists' affection for political chaos. As he points out, its consequences will inevitably be felt more keenly the further one climbs down the socio-economic ladder. Indeed, just when it seemed Theresa May's leadership was at its lowest ebb, the tragedy of Grenfell Tower intervened, paradoxically both highlighting her absence of leadership and also that some things are perhaps more serious than party politics. But Grenfell Tower was political, as it is the outcome of a series of decisions taken by the nation about what sort of nation it wants to be, what level of inequality it will tolerate. In any event, the future of the nation seems to hang in the balance once more. With Brexit, the next pressing question, even if you believe that the future can be rescued by, oh, Jeremy Corbyn, it's not clear that he has the answer either. James O'Brien joins us now to discuss all of this. James, uh, where to begin uh, with where we are now? Uh, I suppose let's focus on Theresa May to begin with. What do you think is the current status of her government and its prospects? Good grief. Well, with the caveat that by the time I finish talking, events might have overtaken the analysis. <laughs> we'll try and bang this podcast out really quickly. <laughs> if, you, if you don't mind. Well, I, I think what I find most interesting about her personal status is that no one appears to want to replace her. Um, it, it would be a fairly straightforward business, one imagines, in, against the backdrop of the disastrous general election to, 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 to launch some sort of push, some sort of coup and the fact that nobody really fancies that speaks volumes um and the fact that the main brexit cheerleaders of course would ordinarily ordinarily be be kind of circling the corpse more greedily than anybody else and yet they they're they're notable mostly by their absence from the leadership chatter so that's that's quite chilling in a way to think that even a, a party is replete with egos and ambition as the Conservative Party doesn't currently have any big beast who'd want to be the one to administer the final blow to Theresa May. What it means about... Go on. So is David Davis on manoeuvres? I I saw the slightly ridiculous splash in the mail on Sunday saying Andrew Mitchell was sort of criticising... Yeah, well, you never know with that kind of branch of the party who speaks with whose say-so. I find it a little bit difficult to believe that Andrew Mitchell would have gone off on a complete solo mission and done that without clearing it with David Davis or without David Davis's connivance. But but I, I find it equally difficult to believe that he would want to be in the box seat at the moment as the, um, and he's probably more exposed to the ramifications of reality as opposed to the ramifications of how he pitched Brexit than anybody else is. It, just today, I mean, just one example from the last couple of hours would be the claim in the House from Boris Johnson that there is no plan, whereas David Davis said last year that there have been um, huge amounts of planning. I say last year, it may even have been last month, that they'd have put in loads of planning for a, for a no-deal scenario. So you have the Brexit secretary 
saying, I mean, literally saying the polar opposite of what the foreign secretary is saying. So it'd be a brave man to, to take a punt on what's going to happen next. But the fact that none of them want the big job is, is, is pertinent. I mean, it does seem, yeah, it does seem really baffling that the Conservative Party would be willing to sort of sit back and watch the toxicity spread further because the damage to the Conservative brand, if I can use that word, is just getting worse by the day. But it'd be damaging to test this out on an election now where they would possibly lose. That's the, yeah. that's, that's the problem, I guess, James, isn't it? That's then? what they're frightened of. It's, 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 it's a combination. It's, it's, it's a rock and a hard place. The Scylla and Charybdis... <laughs> if you will, of Brexit on the one side and then and then Jeremy Corbyn's popularity on the other. And and when you factor in the, the, the absence of leadership, the rudderless nature of the party at the moment, they're literally going up that channel in between the two clashing rocks without without much of a plan or a map. So mm. the one thing you can always say about the Conservatives is that they'll do whatever it takes to hang on to power, even as some people have suggested if that involved a kind of a, a weird hiatus like the one we're seeing now. But how, how it will end, I don't know, because March 2019, roughly when you'd be expecting some sort of end game to come into play to Theresa May's um, sleepwalking period of her premiership, that's going to be when the full ramifications of Brexit hit home. So I, 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 I don't think there are any pithy analyses available at the mm. moment. I, th- I think chaos is, is the order of the next two or three years, and, and it will be both national and party political. The only The only thing probably you can predict with some certainty, is that the, 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 the post-Glastonbury Jeremy Corbyn hangover is going to be huge and it's going to kick in quite soon. Well, let's talk about that because um, he wants to pretend to voters down south he believes in free movement within the single market and voters up north that he doesn't. And we know he's a Brexiteer, one of the most committed Brexiteers in terms of his last 30 years of his political life. At some point, the Labour Party are going to have to pick a side yeah. on Brexit, aren't they? You, you would have thought so. I, I'll tell you who's quite interesting on this, because his, his, his loyalties are perhaps more torn than most people's. And, and that's Billy Bragg, who, who's very much of the view. He was telling me on, on Twitter the other day, he's very much of the view that the Corbyn tactic is very deliberate. It's a deliberate um, holding tactic. They're, they're trying to be all things to all people. The, the Boris Johnson flavoured attempt to have your cake and eat it is something you can actually do in opposition. And he, he belongs to the sort of branch of momentum and the branch of the Labour Party, Bragg does, that, that, that believes there will be a, a cogent attempt to put the brakes on Brexit at some point. I don't share his optimism for the reasons you've just described. The history of Tony Benn-style Euro-scepticism is, is, is writ large. I just wonder whether his, I think, sincere sort of passion for protecting workers and protecting ordinary people, I just wonder whether that will possibly come into play against the idealistic notion of what what a post-Brexit Britain might look like, and he might actually end up sacrificing that historical principle on the altar of of political pragmatism. The problem is Jeremy Corbyn believes in, I think, jobs for all people, including immigrants. He doesn't make a a nationalistic distinction, and the problem is that the vast majority, I would imagine, of the Labour support up north don't share that view. They they, they want jobs to be protected, but they want want them, as Gordon Brown put it, to be British jobs for British people. Yeah, but that's a a, a fairly hollow slogan, and and Gordon Brown adopted it as a sort of defensive back-foot technique to deal with rhetoric and demagoguery that isn't supported by by factual evidence. And, And the minute you start trying to fight demagoguery, um, by moving towards the demagogue. The demagogue moves further away and, and, and the whole debate, the whole landscape becomes even more toxic. Somebody, and if anybody can do this, Jeremy Corbyn actually, for his 
faults and failings. He, he's probably better equipped to do this than most mainstream politicians of the last few years. Somebody soon is going to have to stand up and argue passionately and coherently about why immigration is not the root of all the problems that successive governments and, and, and newspaper editors continue to lay at its feet. You draw out the example of um, seasonal vacancies on fruit and vegetable farms. You say they yep. hit 1,500 in May 2016. By contrast, there were 143. And so yeah. I guess the question is, A, will, will British workers fill those those posts no two should they three uh, do we actually need to say that the working conditions that tend to go with those kinds of posts are tend to be unsatisfactory and so we need to reassess the whole gig economy well it's 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 piecework so it doesn't quite play into the gig economy narrative the 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 point is that british people don't want to do the jobs nor should they have to it's work that has been done historically by young people coming here Mm. filling their pockets over the course of the summer and then either continuing to study in this country or, or or going home with a chunk of change that will go a lot further in an Eastern European country, um, for now at least, the pound status notwithstanding, than it will anywhere else. It's not. It's, again, it's another example of, of these jobs that people were doing that somehow got caught up in a narrative of British jobs for British workers when British workers didn't want to do those British jobs. But Cameron, ultimately, the thing that I keep coming back to, though, James, is that Cameron went to Europe when there was still a chance to stay in and whether we like it or not, needed an argument on immigration. He needed to be able to say British politicians can yeah. control immigration. And even if that control is to, is to have a lot of it, you need to be held responsible for a policy decision that will, will lead to a certain number of people yeah. in the country. And the EU didn't give him anything. So when he had to go and stand on the stump and people said, what about immigration? His only choice was to say immigration is a good thing. And I think you and I working at LBC both know that there's a large, large swathe of people who will never listen to that argument. Yes, but they're all wrong. And, 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 that, that, no, and, and that's where political confidence and political leadership becomes important. And that's where uh, both Gordon Brown and David Cameron utterly failed to grasp the nettle. The, 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 the bottom line about that renegotiation, I think there were two choices he had. He didn't have to stand up after failing to secure any um, special opt-outs. And remember, you're dealing with European leaders who are looking at a country that's already not in Schengen or the Euro. So to request a kind of hat-trick of opt-outs at a time when Euroscepticism was bubbling away in countries like, like France and Germany, it's easy to forget that now. A year is a long time. Um, 18 months is a, is a very long time. But, but they, they couldn't then go back to their Eurosceptic rumps in their parliaments and in their political um, uh, setups and say, oh, we've given that lot another opt-out. So I don't, I, I don't think that Merkel's intransigence or the EU's intransigence is quite as important as everybody thinks. But the other thing, and this for me is the, 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 the most emblematic uh, uh, part of the whole debate, both pre, post and during Brexit, because the other thing he could have said was, actually, we possess the powers to limit EU immigration. We possess the powers under EU law to deport people if they haven't found work after three months. We possess the powers to refuse entry to people who can't provide evidence of significant material wealth to sustain a lifestyle. We can insist that people pay for health insurance. And, and, and he couldn't do that because he'd allowed the Daily Mail um, UKIP narrative of, of absence of control to uh, go unchecked for, for, for five years. Of and this, that was administrative failings, you're saying? It was administrative failings that we've not enforced the current no, EU... again, again, again I, 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 I'm, I'm a complete snowflake on this. I don't, think, I don't think we even needed to. The reason why they weren't enforced was because economically it would have been damaging. We would have raised less money. But EU migration is a net contributor to the British well, economy. Yeah, so no. 
to, to start trying to exercise control over something that's a net contributor to the British economy and costs money would be absurd. But you're absolutely right to cite the, you know, the, 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 the chomping tribes of people who are persuaded that immigration is a terrible evil and, uh, and has, has, has impacted negatively upon their own existences. There will be a few people for whom that's true. But it's, it's again, it's that idea of, of, of tackling dishonest demagoguery with real politics and real policies. It can never, ever work because... Even if he'd come back and said that there's going to be a limit, the, 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 the needle would have just moved on to someone else. It would have been another scapegoat, another case of demonizing. And in fact, the appetites you describe would not have been sated by anything that he could have brought back because the front page of the Daily Mail and the, and the UKIP narrative would have just would have just shifted everything. But I think it would have made a 5% difference, James. You remember it's a 4% well, win. And, 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 maybe, maybe. And then you have a different world. I mean, because a scraped Remain win... Um, I personally still think we needed another bite of the cherry if it had been 52-48 the other way around. It's possibly the only thing I've ever agreed with Nigel Farage about, although he, he presumably is pretending that he never says that. That's his general... There was a great Nigel tweet Bob by Randy. Jonathan Coe when he said, uh, the, the, our, the root of our problems is this, we had a 52-48 result, yeah. and instead of pretending that meant don't know, which it clearly yeah. does, Absolutely. it meant we want a hard Brexit or we, we're, we're all in for very Brexit. Very strange, very strange to unpick that. Can I just say again, it was advisory. <laughs> well, I, know, no, no. <laughs> I tell you, you need a hard hat if you want to say that, I think. <laughs> He's absolutely right, though. The problem is it was so toxic and it was so entrenched and the Remain campaign was so weak and, and, and gutless that, that it, it, it felt like a more resounding, it was made to feel like a more resounding victory than it was. And again, it's the same people responsible. It's the It's the immigration demagogues and the right-wing newspapers that did that. Um, Vince Cable said on Sunday he thinks Brexit might not happen. Um, yes. Now, you know, I think the Lib Dems on this have not proven to be particularly great leaders as demonstrated by their, their poor performance in, in the election. Sure. Can you conceive of a series of events by which Brexit doesn't happen? I can, yes. I, I, I think it would be difficult without um, another vote. Well, I, and yeah. I think it would be difficult in terms of keeping a, a, a kind of even viler, uglier nationalist genie in the bottle, I think the vote would probably have to be nationwide rather than parliamentary. But I, I, I'm not so sure. I, I, and the sands are shifting slightly. And I think, I think as reality bites and this absolute absence of anybody explaining benefits, all, all you're getting now is, is, is a really cynical shift from it's going to be brilliant to... Well, it's going to be bad, but if we don't do it, if we don't do it, then some quite unpleasant people are going to go nuts, and there's going to be civil unrest and violence and riots. That's not a reason to press on with something no. damaging or dangerous. But, it's just a question of how many people take that on board. But here's the thing. Here's the reason why. Cause you can make well, an argument: a parliamentary election in six yeah. months' time could reset the Brexit debate. But that's that depends on the parties. Yeah honestly and clearly articulating a Brexit position which have a mandate provided to them by the, the people of this country. And the one thing we saw Labour do, which I think is scandalous, is they tried to blag their way through this election by being all things to all people and uh, in the South saying, yeah, we don't really agree with Brexit, in the North saying, please, you can be a UKIP voter, but come back to Labour safely because we'll yeah. guarantee you your Brexit, your hard Brexit, your reduction of immigration. And to have the reset, you'd need Labour to say, this is the thing that we believe and we're going to take the hit in the north if we're going to be more um, inclined towards... You, yeah, towards. well, I, I wonder if, he, if you need even more than that because it doesn't matter what 
platforms or manifestos either side lay out in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a looming election because I think what everybody, well, I say everybody, what everybody who watches things properly is beginning to realise is that it's in the lap of the EU. It's yeah, got it's very little true. to do with what we ask for. It's all about what they're prepared to gift and grant. So, yeah, if, if either major party, because don't forget the Parliamentary Conservative Party is still a, a staunch Remain majority. They just can't say so in public anymore because they, they'd get lynched. But the bottom line is that one party has to come out and say we're going to stop it. We're going to stop it. We don't. We don't believe that, that anything is is better than what we've currently got, which is pretty close to an objective truth. Even Davis and Johnson aren't arguing now that we're going to have something better than what we've already got. I just don't know. I don't know how you get that past Paul Dacre, who, let's face it, he's in charge. But do you even believe that, uh, James? I know you, you, you say that, but you could actually make an argument that the press have never been uh, that powerful. They happen, uh, they're, they're, they happen the, to win the... The grip has loosened. The grip has loosened. I think the election proved that. But you, you, the people you describe, the ones we speak to on a regular basis on the radio, who've got so many what's and no why's, that, that, that they are the creation of, of Paul Dacre's brand of journalism. The people who can tell you what they think in incredibly uh, robust and, and, and passionate ways. But when you ask them why they think it, they've got nothing. And that's an epic generational failure of journalism. But yeah, I make no, I, I make no bones about laying it at the feet of Kelvin McKenzie and, and Paul Dacre. They've debased objectivity. They've, they've, they've debased truth. And ultimately, they've debased democracy, which the referendum result proves. Uh, Barnier uh, put the point well when he said, which I think this is the point that you're getting to here, is that um, no deal in normal negotiation, no deal is the status quo. You know, yeah. you, but you have a negotiation and then you yeah. don't win, you don't get any result. You walk away, you've yeah. got nothing. You don't buy the house. Yeah, uh, this is this is a large step backwards, and this seems to me to be the point that will come back and haunt us forever. Which is that if we walk away with nothing, it's not nothing. Mm. It's worse than what we have now. And when yeah. you, as a negotiating position, that's untenable, isn't it? Well, I, I, I don't understand what they think that they're doing. And, and it kind of only comes into release. There's a couple of examples I give in the article of, of David Davis having, a, a, I mean, arguably an even poorer grasp of European Union rules than Donald Trump demonstrated during his meeting with Angela Merkel. I mean, it took her, it took her 11 times to explain to Donald Trump why he couldn't do a deal with just Germany. And yet, as recently as May as last year, David Davis was talking about how the first thing the European Union negotiator would be doing would be arriving in Germany. So I, I think some of these things are becoming evident to observers like, like you and others. But, but I, I genuinely wonder what planet the, 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 the sort of trinity of Brexiteers inhabit at the moment, because cold, hard evidence directly contradicts what they're saying in public. And then, as the Johnson Davis example I gave you five minutes ago proves, they're now directly contradicting each other in public. And at the same time, we're supposed to be conducting a negotiation with the probably the single most sophisticated trade negotiating team on the planet. And we seem to be sending in well, I don't even know who we're sending in. The one bloke who could have given us a bit of a steer on it, Ivan Rogers, had to walk the plank in January because they refused to listen to his warnings. Yeah. Uh, just finally, ha- happy days. Yeah. Happy days. Well, uh, <laughs> keeping the happy feel, I really feel we should do this because it happened in 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 our patch here in London, yes. Grenfell Tower. Yeah. Um, because you've said to to me the, and it's been apparent to anyone listening to you, the impact it's had on you and on everyone in London and that's going to be on the, the sites of anyone who drives past that part of uh, yeah. the city for a very long time. Yeah. Is this an indictment in your view of political failings you can lay at someone's door? I know you weren't comfortable with John McDonnell using the phrase no. political murder to describe it. It seems to me more of an indictment of a societal thing uh, in regard to which both parties are culpable rather than necessarily just one. But where do you start? What's the meaning now a month later? Because I think tomorrow is a month on. Mm. Is, is it a month? 
God, it yes, is. It is. Yeah, a month on. It feels since, less, it? Yeah, since Grenfell. What's what's the what's the lingering thing? We'll, we'll leave it with that. But I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. I I, I think the, the sort of Corbyn era Labour Party can uh, be a, a, exonerated from responsibility um, and probably should be because I do think he has spoken since he he sort of started beeping on the radar as as a, as a potential and then an actual leader he has spoken about little else than the forgotten people the people left behind and in terms of local politics that the you know the fact that they gave a 100 pound council tax rebate to every resident in the borough who was who was fully paid up and didn't give anything to people who were on 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 concessions or who paid a reduced amount because of their circumstances while simultaneously wrapping the building in inflammable cladding um, for, for cheaper than they could have paid for, for safer stuff. And in Nicholas Paget Brown's own words, uh, in some of the documents released prior or after the announcement of the deal, for, for aesthetic reasons, they spent you know several million pounds to make it look nicer from the bay windows of the two, three, four million pound homes opposite. And I think that does speak of a, of a political... What's the correct word? It's not quite a decision. It, it, it speaks of a political mood. Yeah. that some people describe as austerity, but which probably described, deserves to be described in, in rather more brutal terms. And Grenfell will prove to be a pivot, but oddly, to tally with the conversation we were having previously, it's a pivot that's diluted by that um, immigration demagoguery, because, of course, the, the, the hard right and the right-wing media has already started making much of the origins of some of the survivors, and, and that has been allowed to dissipate and dilute some of the righteous fury that really every council taxpayer, every taxpayer, every decent person in Britain should have been feeling. I, 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 yeah, I think it's huge. I really do. It hasn't. My, my, my sense that it is a, a pivotal political moment hasn't diminished at all in the, in the, in the, in the weeks since it actually happened. James O'Brien, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Um, I totally... I think it's a... It, He's very good on Grenfell. He's very interested in it. And um, it seems to me that if you had to pick a tragedy, you know, I'm 37. It's clearly the, the most significant tragedy in my lifetime in Britain. And that's this basically Hillsborough and this. And this mm. is basically... And it, it does feel like it. I don't think politicising it's a problem. People got very angry no, when people talked. It's I obviously think that's politi- why it's a yeah. tragedy and even more of a tragedy that's so so deeply felt because of the political dimensions. And it has to be politics. And whether it's party politics, and, and I think John McDonnell, I think probably overstated. We talked about murder. But I remember doing a radio show on the the Sunday afterwards and saying it is murder. Mm. It's the murder by neglect of people because mm. they trusted a state that says we'll put you in a home. We will make sure that home is safe. And by the way, when a fire happens, we'll tell you to stay in that home because the building will protect you. That's a betrayal of, of murderous consequence. I don't think mm. that's wrong to, to necessarily use words no, it's l- not. like that. But whether it's a party political moment, I think is what we, we shall see. I suppose at this at this stage, every moment is a party political moment. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, I mean, it's. I think it's one of those things that it's impossible to not politicise because it is it is is essentially political as well as obviously human for most essentially it's human but humans are political they're in they're in their political system and the idea of talking about something like Grenfell without uh bringing em- emotion into it is obviously impossible I don't know if you heard any questions at the weekend Jack Monroe was on it no was she yeah yeah and 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 she was shaken to tears uh live on air and you know some people would pounce on her for that but I completely understand it because it's so shocking that this has happened this level of neglect which is purely political in its nature these people were were deemed less important yeah. than the people who got the 100 pound 
uh, rebate. And, Simple. And yeah, I, mean. I, I know. And it's and then you place that within the context of Brexit, which is nothing to do with it, except for the fact that we're all going to have now spend the next two years. We won't be fully focusing on things like that. just as we won't be focusing on schools or won't be focusing on social care or on the NHS because we'll be focusing on the massive amount of you, know, you can't put any more you know, dicking around that will have to take place in order to, to do something with Brexit which is a choice that we have made ourselves to do. Yeah and the people who live in places like Grenfell Tower are the people who are most likely to feel the negative effects of Brexit i.e. the absence of jobs uh, the absence of money to pay for social care and yeah. all of that. So it's it's obviously just going to compound what we already have. I wish we could end that on a cheery note, but I don't think we can. I can can't. We? I'm sorry. No, no, there is, there <laughs> I can no... try and dig around for one, but we're going to be returning to Irish Brexit and the consequences there, and we won't be any cheerier then. No, I don't expect. Shall we? Shall we take a lull? Shall no. we have a lull? We'll L- talk about museums and art. A new exhibition at the Tate Modern. Lovely. And so to a new exhibition just opened at London's Tate Modern. Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power brings together 150 artworks by more than 60 artists, spanning 20 years from 1963, when the civil rights movement was at its height, to 1983. These are 20 years that transformed blackness from a divisive marker of identity denoting inferiority and quiet submission into a crucial vocal moment for solidarity and genuine, repeatedly undelivered emancipation. These are, of course, the years of Martin Luther King, of Malcolm X, of the Black Panthers, and of calls for black power amid riot after riot, violently suppressed. What in all of this was the role of art? There's a a very clear sense in which this is art from then, but very much for now. The TLS's visual arts editor, Anna Vo, met Mark Godfrey, co-curator of the exhibition and senior curator of international art at Tate Modern, for a preview. She began by asking Mark about the parameters of the exhibition. Why 1963 to 1983? The exhibition is framed by two art events. It has a background of social and political history like any exhibition, like the Gerhard Richter exhibition or any exhibition, but it's framed by two art events. The first art event is the formation of the Spiral Group in New York. It's a group of artists, some of whom were very senior, some of whom just starting out, who came together as a group to address the question of what it meant to be, in their words, a Negro artist at the time of the civil rights movement, at the time of uh, Martin Luther King and the the, the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. And it ends with a performance by Lorraine O'Grady that uh, took place in Harlem in 1983. And the, the thread throughout the show is how different groups of artists all had to encounter the same questions, what it meant to be a black artist. Was there a black art? Was there a black aesthetic? Where to show their work, whether in galleries or on the streets? Whether to make legible political imagery or whether to make abstract work? Um, How might uh, photography and a black aesthetic come together? Um, What kind of materials to use? I think those questions are current and live and inescapable for every artist in every group in the show but what the exhibition tries to do is reveal how different answers to those same questions were provided by different artists and do you want to talk me through this first room where we're standing so the spiral group uh, was a group of 15 artists but we're concentrating on three norman lewis uh, who made abstract paintings and was one of the abstract expressionists 
Romare Bearden, a, a preeminent collagist, but who began making collages at this time, and Reginald Gammon, who made a painting, which is a very graphic painting of people carrying Freedom Now banners. Uh, Lewis, as I said, is an abstract painter, but there are times where he was engaging with the history uh, of racial oppression in the States. There's a painting behind me called America the Beautiful, which also, as well as looking like a collection of white brushstrokes on black background, is also uh, in some ways an image of a KKK uh, ceremony. Um, Romare Bearden took photographs from magazines and from images of his friends and fellow artists and cut them up and made them into beautifully intricate small collages that, um, that in some way chart the great migration from the south to northern cities. Um, and Gammon, as I said, made these very graphic paintings. The point of looking at Spiral at the beginning is to start with an artist group but also to show that even within this group, there wasn't a single answer. There were three, at least three very different answers to the questions that they posed of what it meant to be a black artist at that time. In the second room, we're looking at uh, various um, responses to the question of where to put one's work, whether to put it on the streets, in African-American neighborhoods, on the side of buildings, whether as an artist you devote your labor to making murals and addressing a black audience in the space where they'd see those murals. Or in the case of Emery Douglas, who worked for the Black Panther Party, um, his idea was to design really eye-catching back covers and front covers um, every week that would circulate. And people could tear off the back cover and pin them up to the walls of their, uh, of their houses as posters. And images associated with the Black Power movement circulated through the Black Panther newspaper, but also through the posters he made. Another painting we have in this second room is by Cliff Joseph. It's a painting depicting a black alphabet. Uh, and he would take this painting around schools and teach with it, even though he was used to showing his work in galleries. So all of the works in the second room are around the question of taking art from the gallery to the street. What, what galleries were these artists showing in? Some wanted to be part of the existing commercial network of galleries uh, and did everything possible to be shown along the same in the same galleries as Andy Warhol uh, or you know, Mark Rothko and, and other majors. And how possible was that? It wasn't very possible, but there were exceptions. There were dealers who were interested in African-American artists or just in the art that they were making. Uh, they were, they were, there were others who um, would have one or two black artists on their stable of 20 white artists. But then some of the artists that we're looking at in this show didn't have that desire and wanted to show their work outside the gallery system. And then there's other artists who wanted to... Um, create their own galleries and uh, make, you know, make their own enterprise and start their own networks of collectors, of curators, critics, and so on. And, and there were some who felt that they shouldn't work with the mainstream establishment. Yeah, exactly. Some felt that the mainstream, well, the white mainstream establishment was going to um, 
essentially neutralized the power of their work and that if they showed their work in those establishments they wouldn't have the they wouldn't reach the audiences they wanted to reach so they withheld their work from such galleries and such networks and then there are many artists that we're looking at who were really protesting against the exclusionary policies of some of the main museums at the time or who deplored the way that those museums tried to do shows about black culture at that time. The works in the fourth room uh, were all made in Los Angeles and many of the artists here showed in a gallery called the Brockman Gallery and the Brockman Gallery was set up by two brothers who came back from one of the civil rights marches to Los Angeles where they were living and decided to build their own gallery and it was a black run gallery in a black neighborhood of Los Angeles and showing work to black people and beginning to build a black clientele. So the artists were making amazing, brilliant works in an assemblage tradition, using found materials, recycling things to make objects, but they were uh, part of a, a gallery that was trying to form its own distribution system and display system. One of the artists associated that with that gallery was Noah Purifoy. And he, uh, after the Watts Rebellion in 1965, gathered detritus from the streets and um, collected rubble, essentially, and made work out of that rubble. And I think it's a brilliant reuse of the, the waste that would follow a race riot to, to collect that and to turn it into art. And he wanted to change an attitude away from materialism to a different kind of creativity. Does the message change when you take art like that and put it in an institution like the Tate? Most, if you go through the British Museum, you see many works of art that was intended as altarpieces in churches in Italy. And of course it changes when you take them out of a church in Italy and you move them to a museum in Britain. Uh, and of course the message of a work that was meant to circulate on the streets of Oakland, on the back page of a newspaper, changes when you put it in a museum. Most of the, I mean, I'd say all of the artists that are still alive we've spoken to and they're aware of this exhibition and very interested in it. And many of them have already had that moment of taking older work and putting it in museums, uh, even though originally it didn't circulate in museums. So we're certainly not the first people to be taking work that was originally circulating as posters, for instance, and putting it in, a, in the context of an art museum. And we're completely conscious of the fact that, of course, things change when you take it out of the original circuit of distribution and put it in, in, the, in the museum system. One of the artists in the exhibition, in some ways still committed to a politics of critiquing a museum, and um, for instance, we, we have several of his works in the exhibition, David Hammond's a fantastic and a very influential artist, but he would continue to say that he wouldn't want his work to be consumed and historicised in the way that some museums would do it. So for instance, he's an artist that many American museums and museums in Europe too have wanted to give him a retrospective and he's refused that um, partly because I think he, he believes that the, exactly as you're saying that the museum is in some way still uh, a bastion of white culture and that to put a retrospective in such a space would to be to take something away from the work. However, Individual works of his are included in most museum collections. We have one. 
and we're borrowing a few for this exhibition and he's participated in many group exhibitions. So while uh, I think the big retrospective is yet to happen, uh, he is, his work is seen in, in many different group exhibitions. Is there a particular story that you want viewers to take away from this exhibition? Yeah, I think it, the, the story is actually a group of stories being different responses to the same set of questions of what it meant to be a black artist, was there a black aesthetic, um, who to show your work to, which communities to build, which audiences to try and mobilise and to construct and to reach. It's really about the very diverse ways in which these questions were answered by different groups of artists in different cities. So essentially one set of questions, many set of answers. No one thing called black art. Do you have, amongst that, do you have any particular favourites? Yeah, I have many favourites, but the work of David Hammonds is a particular favourite. In the last room of the exhibition, you see works that he made with black hair, fried chicken, pork ribs, inner tubes, um, dreadlocks, greasy paper bags from takeaway food. And I think what he had the genius to do would be to take everyday materials associated with like everyday black culture, but everyday everything culture, um, but materials of the black body as well, and to transform those materials into intriguing artworks, to play with the tension between ugliness and grace in a, in a dramatic and compelling way. You explained briefly about why the show ended in 1983. Yeah. Um, what's happened since? Um, well, it's very interesting. There, there, we wrote about this in the introduction to the catalogue to justify this end date. I think what happens at that point is the beginning of a much more theorised type of artwork and art practice that's in some way related to the changes in MFA programmes in America, the Masters of Fine Arts programmes. Um, so you get black American artists whose work is a lot more postmodern, a lot more self-referential, referring to black histories, to black literature, works of art that are dealing with the language of James Baldwin or um, the language of other um, black writers, um, right, like Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. And many important artists begin their work at the beginning of the 80s, Adrian Piper, Kerry James Marshall, Glenn Ligon, Lorna Simpson, just to name four. And their practice is different to anything that we have in this show because of that much more theorised postmodern way of making work. That was the curator Mark Godfrey at Tate Modern talking to Anna Vo on Tuesday. Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power is at Tate Modern in London until October this year. It moves to Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art, Arkansas from February and arrives at the Brooklyn Museum for a six-month spell from September 2018. The TLS's review is forthcoming. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot... We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? 
Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So let us return to the question of Brexit in our current political mess and especially its implications for the relationship between Britain and Ireland. Last year, the historian Roy Foster came on this podcast and into Alia rightly raised the truly scandalous manner in which the impact on Northern Ireland was variously downplayed, misunderstood and ignored by proponents of the leave argument. Well, this year, the consequences of that bovine negligence have become apparent. We have a Conservative government propped up by the DUP, who half-heartedly support Brexit, but also must recognise the massive threat it poses to both Northern Ireland, the Republic and the connection between the two. As Foster makes clear in his review of Anglo-Irish politics, the influence of Irish politicians in Westminster and vice versa has a long history and a long history of crisis. The current position includes the suspension of the Stormont Assembly on the basis that Sinn Féin and the DUP cannot work together, an impasse further complicated by the DUP's new involvement in the British administration, an involvement which may or may not be in breach of the terms of the Good Friday Agreement. Roy quotes the beautiful phrase of Hubert Butler in the 1950s, his hope that the border might simply float away like a sticking plaster from a wound that has healed. But that wound has perhaps instead been chafed and made raw by recent political events. Roy Foster joins Thea and me now. Roy, thank you so much for coming on. Hello. Um, the Irish question, as it's been termed, has long been an issue in Westminster politics. You draw parallels between what has gone on in the past and, and now. What, what are those most striking parallels about, about the current situation, do you think? Well, it's a question of forgetting about Ireland until a crisis comes up where the Irish may hold the balance of power. This is exactly, of course, what happened with Gladstone in the 1880s, what happened again with Asquith uh, and, the, and, the, and the Liberals between 1910 and 1914, and what's happening now. It follows a long period when there have been, of course, Northern Irish MPs at Westminster, but they tend to be creatively forgotten about um, or thrown asop every now and then until something like this happens. And as usual, there was no anticipation of this. As usual... The, um, that they wait until, or, the, or they're forced to wait until the moment at which they can, they have no option but to reel in. In this case, the DUP. Um, the background to the what you just outlined, Stig, very very succinctly, to the difficulties of the of the Northern Ireland Assembly reflects the fact, of course, that after the the um, high romantic fervour of the Good Friday Agreement and the Chuckle Brothers, as they were dubbed, Martin McGuinness and Ian Paisley Sr., this, this, this um, uh, get-together between the two extremes in Northern Irish politics has produced what many of us thought would happen inevitably in the end, which is that they, their successors, McGuinness and Paisley's successors, have, have no compunction in admitting how much they loathe each other and they can't really act together. They've expelled the moderates or destroyed the moderates and they're reaping, in a sense, the reward of that. Meanwhile, the British government is reaping the reward, I think, of having thought they could forget all about Northern Ireland. And 
the combination of reactionary and often mentally challenged political attitudes and sleazy opportunism that we're seeing is to me, depressing in the extreme. We're going to come to Brexit, which I think is the the critical issue facing all all of us for the next two years and and sadly beyond. But what does the the specific deal that's been done with the DUP uh, to prop up this uh, very, very, very weak Tory government, what does that mean in your view for the politics of Ireland? It's again in a long tradition, it's loads of money for the political slum as um, the inside team of Sunday Times long ago, Chris in Northern Ireland, if you're, you're too young to remember, Stig, but it was called John Bull's political slum. Yeah. It's not only a political slum, it's a political, it's a, it's a financial swallow hole. You know, Northern Ireland has not been financially viable as a regional economy since 1926. I hope when we're commemorating things over the next few years, we commemorate a century of handouts. And this is just one of the, the biggest and latest handouts and it'll be swallowed up like everything else. Uh, the DUP will get money, which and the Northern Irish farmers, I notice, have been specially singled out, as well they might be, because they're going to lose an incredible amount of support from the EU, as are Northern Irish businesses, as will higher education in Northern Ireland, as the Northern Ireland electorate who voted against Brexit saw more clearly than the asinine DUP. So why is the DUP pro-Brexit? That seems to me every why time, I, every, time every time I read it, you think, well, what point is there going to be a sanity check and say, of course it won't? Yeah, uh, well, I think they're pro-Brexit because um, Sinn Féin was anti-Brexit. I think that's a very large part of it. Uh, liberal Northern and despairing Northern Irish friends said to me today, no, that's not the full story. There are Daily Mail readers who hate immigrants and hate metropolitan liberals. And, I, and this part is right, I think, and have a... a pathetic and misbegotten desire to be more British than the British. All this, of course, conduces to a support for Brexit. But a moment's thought, and a moment's thought among British politicians too, would have uh, brought them to the realisation of what this means for the border, which, as you said in your introduction, will be strengthened, uh, complicated, made more um, problematic in every economic political and social way and let us think only think for a moment of the immigration question from an EU country into a non-EU country it's it's an appalling prospect one thing that absolutely astonishes me is that at least two recent northern irish secretaries of state theresa villiers and owen patterson are both vehement and strident brexiteers which simply shows that i've mentioned sleazy opportunism that they, their their political opportunism far outweighs their interest in the region which they were supposed to govern. I mean, is it simplistic to, of me to assume that the coincidence of of the Remain vote and and Republican the Republican position means that there's been a a real shot in the arm in terms of youth involvement and and uh, youth mobilising for for Republicanism? I don't know about that. I don't know if that if that would statistically be be proven. I think that the Sinn Féin and indeed the Irish Republican ethos has always been very pro-European because it is one way of, in a sense, diluting the border, which is how it has, I think, very advantageously and in a very benign way worked. There's also the fact that the Republic of Ireland is passionately pro-Europe. In spite of having gone through a punishing austerity period at the hands of the so-called Troika after the Irish economic collapse in 2006, 
the, the public opinion, I wrote about this in my piece, in Ireland is overwhelmingly pro-Europe. And Sinn Féin in Northern Ireland, of course, wants to emphasise its togetherness with that identity too. I think it's one of the more benign aspects of Sinn Féin itself. And I think that youth vote notwithstanding, I think it is part of the ideology of Irish republicanism to be pro-European as a differentiation, of course, from 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 the UK identity, mm. which Northern Unionism still trumpets. And does that mean, therefore, that republicanism in the North has been received a shot in the arm by this Brexit debate? Because it's, yes, it's, 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 it's a union that now seems to be more palatable. I think it has. I think it absolutely has. Um, I don't think it will reach the point where a, a referendum on a united Ireland would carry the day. But certainly that prospect has been boosted by the horrific implications of Brexit for the island of Ireland as a whole. And also Jeremy Corbyn, of course, uh, if he were to be, you know, this government to fall, Jeremy Corbyn goes into power, he is a supporter of a united Ireland. You'd have a British Prime Minister who has spent 30 years, sometimes in extraordinarily controversial circumstances, supporting that very issue. Well, quite right too. And in the old, you know, in his early pro pro-IRA days, and it was pro-IRA as much as pro-Sinn Féin, Jeremy Corbyn was not, as his supporters now claim, you know, a prophetic voice saying we have to bring Sinn Féin into the big tent. He was actually an old-fashioned troops out, drive the unionists into the sea person, as many of the British or several of the British far left were back in the day. Um, and I think that should should be remembered. But as to um, him encouraging, if he were to become Prime Minister, encouraging United Ireland, of course, he couldn't, he, he cannot overcome the fact that that will not happen until there is a majority within the six-county unit in favour of it. And I don't see that happening yet. But, but, but say, I mean, because uh, we've just been talking that Brexit may or may not happen in the way that's envisaged. There seems to be an awful lot of political wrangling to follow. But say a land border develops between the Republic and Northern Ireland, which is socially damaging, as you say, it's economically damaging, it's building walls where walls have been, with a tremendous exertion of of blood and stress and sweat, been taken down. Say that were to happen, that does change the face of of the island of Ireland, doesn't it? And and who knows where that leads? It certainly does, and I, I, for one, would not like to forecast where that would lead. But I think that, you know, they... As Jerry Adams famously said, they haven't gone away, you know. And I think it would be, we talked about boosts and shots in the arm, it'll be a sinister boost for the dissident Republicans who are still devoted to violence and bomb-making and so-called spectaculars in, in the interest of their own eventual desire for a united Ireland. A hard border will, I think, conduce to that as well. Besides the incredibly complex questions of single market versus outside EU market uh, tariffs and so forth, and the the questions of immigration, which nobody really seems to have thought about at all. I, I sense talking to you, to you, Roy, that there's a a sense of anger and and frustration, and you know you have the very long view of being a historian. Is there anything that would indicate there's a a way of muddling through this that there's going to be some form of compromise that that, that we that in five years time this will have been a, a muddled situation that has not got drastically worse and there's some sort of uh, of agreement is possible 
That would be the classic British way, yeah. I suppose. But, uh, you know, you're dealing with <laughs> um, 26 European countries who do not think in the classic British way and who are becoming increasingly both dumbfounded at the mess of the disastrous May government's approach and also more and more, I think, impatient with the expectations. I mean, the ineffable so-called foreign secretary only today made crazy announcements yeah. about he said that Brit- Brit- he said that the eu could go whistle for yeah. its uh, uh for, for for the bill that britain's supposed to pay yeah. as, it, as it leaves it's 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 on a par with his saying that their policy was to have their cake and eat it yeah. you know the the destructiveness of these uh idiotic statements in in european terms simply can't be exaggerated and the the irish are Europeans, they are. They play a large part in European diplomacy. They have made a very good thing out of learning how to manipulate Strasbourg and Brussels in a way that the British might have taken creative notice of. And they are, as other European countries, are determined not to allow a muddle through that will simply compound chaos further. Um, I would love to think that this all might be thought better of I would love to think there might be another referendum because I think the public opinion must notice and is noticing the disastrous economic indicators as well as the hopeless political model we're now in. And that this thing could actually be democratically put, well, even put to Parliament. I mean, all all this talk of taking back sovereignty, taking back control, and then to deny Parliament the right to eventually decide on the terms is one of the many ways in which I think we, the people, have been sold several pups, a litter of pups. But who's the strong Irish voice in... The other thing that strikes me, who are the prominent Irish, Northern Irish politicians who could make the case? Who, or even if they're not, they're not Northern Irish, who are the, who are the great politicians? Because you, you've talked about Gladstone and, and Churchill pops up in your piece as well, uh, and you refer to the pygmies that succeeded him. And that strikes me to be as much of an issue that we're facing as well. That say May were to fall, Corbyn. Let's. I mean, people, yeah. people are very fond of him, but but you know he is a he's a he's a man who's a very good protest MP. He doesn't seem to me to be a a, a statesman in, in that sense. Who who, who who's? Who? I couldn't agree more, and I've been deeply disappointed in my own MP, Keir Starmer, who went along with the Article Fifty policy at a time when I think one could have dug one's heels in. Nobody's digging their heels in anywhere, so far as I can see, in the Labour Party. The Liberal Democrats were the only people who said from the beginning that this thing should be queried at every available moment. Um, It's a question of a a talent deficit, isn't it, Um, which is really striking, as seen in the idiotic leadership contest between the ludicrous figure of of Andrea Edson and and then the... um, as Catherine Bennett said in a wonderful column, Mrs. May emerging as relatively the cleaner thing, um, <laughs> as, you know, the piece of clothing you retrieve from the laundry basket. Um, so that's what we're... And is it as bad as that, You right? ask about Northern Irish yeah. leadership, and I'm afraid since the moderates were excluded, since the SDLP and the uh, official unionists were expelled, if you like, from the arena. I'm unimpressed by the current leadership of either of the majority parties there. What we do have in Ireland now is, uh, in in the Republic of Ireland, is a new Taoiseach rather on the model of Macron or indeed of Justin Trudeau, who has just visited Ireland, had a very successful visit, and both he and Leo Varadkar, our new young 
Taoiseach um, compared the position of their relative countries, both with a large, powerful neighbour yeah. um, who seems at the moment to have turned back into a kind of inverted, reactionary, uh, self-regarding and mentally challenged political nervous breakdown, um, while the ostensibly less powerful countries on their flanks um, look outward and move upward. And I think that's true of Canada and it's true of Ireland. And I'm hoping and I'm optimistic about this, that it's true of Europe in general. But there you are with Britain excluded from what seems to me a rising graph. It's a tragedy. I think sadly we're going to have to leave it there. Roy Foster, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Steve. I hadn't thought of the Canada... Republic of Ireland parallel, but it is it is there. Although mm. the Taoiseach is actually he's got some he's re- he's relatively right wing in some respects here mm. in welfare terms, but he's a gay mixed race figure, and so in in a sense, from an identity politics point of view, stands for something progressive. I think the big change is Europe, as Roy said at the end. You know, we saw Macron, Merkel looks yeah. more solid than ever. Yeah, What's it was it? it was interesting to see at the G twenty, and hardly surprising to see everyone fawning. Um, for Macron's attention, um, and I mean, he's a bit grander, isn't he? he? I hope it doesn't go to his head. I mean, I have you seen the pictures <laughs> have of him? Have you seen his head? Have you, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> have you seen the pictures of him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's sort of seated on a almost like a throne. Yeah, and there's a great. He said that he wouldn't do a press conference because journalists wouldn't understand the depth of his thinking. Oh, and you think, God. oh. Well, I mean, in a sense, I mean, as soon as Macron happened, and I'm so glad that he he has. Um, there was a sense in which I was already thinking back to Matteo Renzi and, and, and the fear of what happens when this this young uh, hopeful comes along and, and gets in with his, his centrist uh, policies um, and then it, it goes to his head and he, he pins a vote to himself and, and then, you know... And what's happening in Italy? I, 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 I find it's Italian politics, of all the European politics, the hardest to understand I mean, and well, follow. It's, what's quite interesting is to see how... I mean, I always used to think, I always used to be grateful of how boring politics in this country was. And it's interesting to see how, as a paper, we're covering it. Because you see in James O'Brien's piece, a classic example of how do you even begin to write a piece like that, 2,000 words, uh, that covers everything when everything is still in the air and everything is changing minute by minute. And that's Italy all the time. Yeah. (laughs) So Um, so, so does that give you a bit of perspective? Do you look at this and go, well, this is bad, but... It's not. I've seen worse. Italy's still in Europe, um, and Italy won't leave Europe, as far as I'm concerned. And that is the main thing that makes me think. Actually, we're probably not. I mean, yes, we have endemic corruption and yeah. and all sorts of huge problems, but we're in Europe. And you honestly staying think, in Europe, and, and so we've got a space at that table to reform and you think, Europe. And, and you Europe think that you think that's important? Because I mean, it's interesting. We, it's we've, we've had hugely Euro file podcasts today, James and and, and Roy, and both of us are. are um, certainly heading in that direction. But what does Europe give Italy? Well, I mean, I, I've spoken about this so much I can barely bring myself... Do it one more time, <laughs> briefly. But just, I mean, I find it really interesting how how the English are so um, intent on keeping um, the union with, with Scotland, for example. Yeah. So intent on that union. Why do they not feel the same... I mean, I understand that it's a much newer union... Yeah. But why in this time of increasing division, fragmentation, uh, opposition everywhere, why would you want to break a union that has worked so beautifully? Yes, there have been problems, huge problems, but reform it. 
Yeah, I, I just think, still I, can't get beyond. It's because of sovereignty. That. So you can have a union with Scotland and you retain sovereignty over the island. You, yes. If you have a union with the EU, you lose sovereignty. And as both um, Roy Foster and James O'Brien have said, sovereignty seems to be an alien thing that British people don't know how to to deal with in, in terms of when Parliament was supposed to yeah. be allowed to oh, exercise yeah. sovereignty for us. We don't want we, it. We don't seem to want it. It's yeah. just pure confusion. And well, that's, I mean, that's it really. It's just pure con- confusion. We could, have, we, we could have had a much shorter <laughs> podcast today, couldn't we? We would have said, so we're going to talk about Brexit and the British political situation. What <laughs> do you think, Theo? Chaotic, right? Chaotic. Okay. Yeah, it's confusion. Right, let's leave it. <laughs> yeah, one word summary. Thank you for sticking with us for this far, but we'll summarise it as, yes, it's pretty confusing. Uh, that is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Anna Vaux, James O'Brien and Roy Foster. Do go to the-tls.co.uk to see this week's edition of the TLS, which also contains the great Paul Collier on the rise of corruption, David Throsby on the aftermath of the banking crisis and two lovely pieces on the history of the Arabian Nights. And tweet this podcast at fbfm underscore podcast with your comments and thoughts. I've not checked recently. Are you reviewing us on iTunes? I will be checking after the show. Please do. Next week, we're going to be celebrating the bicentennial of none other than Jane Austen. We're going to be joined by the doctor, Michael Keynes. He's put together a fine special issue of the paper and a book of the best TLS writing on Austin of the last hundred years. Thea and I will be putting on our bonnets and taking a turn around the drawing room then. Until then, from the two of us, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.